It is difficult to know as a teacher how often to repeat important matters. You see, there's a potential problem either way. On the one hand, if you don't repeat something enough to emphasize it properly, then it's easy to give the impression that it's really not that important. On the other hand, if you repeat something too often, then it's easy for people to tune you out because they feel like they've already heard what you have to say. That's the dilemma I face this morning. You see, the primary thrust of our text this morning is about the importance of love. And my concern is that some of us will assume we've, we already have this down and we'll be inclined to tune out the message. I encourage you not to do that. When God says something once, just one time, it's important. When he repeats the matter several times as he does regarding the subject of love in the New Testament, we really need to take heed. That's what we see in our text this morning. Turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our way through this powerful letter written by the Apostle Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And our text this morning will be verses 22 through 25, so please follow along as I read these verses for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass... And all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. The Apostle Peter was in the last phase of his life when he wrote this letter and his second epistle. With the heart of a shepherd, he desired to encourage and to strengthen and exhort the believers who were under his care. That is why his letter is a mixture of, on the one hand, encouraging reminders, and on the other hand, challenging exhortations. This section before us is an illustration of that combination of traits. We see both components here in this text before us. Peter exhorts his readers and us to love. That's the exhortation. And he also reminds us of what God has done for us in the gospel. That's the encouragement. So there is both encouragement and exhortation in the same text, as is the case throughout this first letter. So with that in mind, let's jump into this text and see how it unfolds. In verse 22... Peter says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. The first thing Peter says here in this verse is that these readers had, in obedience to the truth, purified their souls. That is simply a way of describing them as Christians. 
There are a number of ways to describe what it means to be a Christian. You can say it is someone who has received Jesus Christ, John 1.12, as many as received him. Someone who follows Jesus Christ. His most often uh, repeated remark in the Gospels, follow me. Uh, it is someone who has believed in Jesus Christ, John 3.16. There are a number of ways to describe what it means to be a Christian. And one of the ways is to say that it involves obeying the truth with the result that your soul is purified. That is the way Peter describes it here in verse 22. That is the way he describes a Christian. It is someone who has obeyed the truth with the result that the soul is purified. Now, why would Peter use this terminology or this phraseology to describe a Christian? The answer is this. Because God commands all people to repent and believe the gospel, which is the truth. That is God's commands. That is God's commandment. Therefore, whenever someone repents and believes the gospel, that person is obeying the truth. And the result is that that person's soul is purified. That is why Peter uses this terminology to describe a Christian here in verse 22. Furthermore, whenever a person turns to Jesus Christ to make things right on the vertical level, there is an immediate ramification or implication on the horizontal level. And that is why Peter says this change in our souls is for a or unto a sincere love of the brethren. In other words, once we are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to love others who are also right with God through faith in Jesus Christ because now we have become members of the same family, brothers and sisters in Christ. We have seen this truth many, many times through the years in our study of God's Word. The horizontal relationships in the family of God should not be detached from the vertical relationship and vice versa. The vertical relationship should not be seen in isolation from the horizontal relationships. That is why Peter's final statement here in this verse is to love one another fervently from the heart. Notice that Peter says we are to love one another fervently or deeply or earnestly. It wasn't enough for Peter simply to say that we should love one another. He intensifies it. We should love one another fervently, deeply, earnestly. This Greek word means to stretch to the limits. And it was actually used to describe a muscle that was pushed to the limits of its capacity. That is the way we are called to love each other. We should love and love and love. And when we feel like we just can't love anymore because this person is getting on our nerves or under our skin, we should extend even more love. That's the exhortation here in verse 22. So what does this love look like in action? We understand what it says. It's pretty straightforward. Love one another deeply. Love one another fervently. So what does it look like? You see, it's easy to talk about loving one another in general terms, but it's important that we take it to the level of practical implications. So to see the practical implications, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 so we can see what love looks like in everyday practical ways. 
You are familiar with this chapter. It is called the love chapter of the Bible. And it is so called because it defines, describes, and delineates what love is, what love does, what love looks like in very practical terms. So let's spend a little time here in 1 Corinthians 13 so that we can understand how we can know if we're doing what 1 Peter 1.22 says. It says love deeply, love fervently. How do we know if we're doing that? This chapter answers the question for us. Beginning in verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, Love suffers long. Other translations render this phrase, Love is patient. If you want to know what love is and what it looks like, it is patient with other people. Love suffers long. When someone is loving, it takes him or her a long time before getting angry with others, and it takes a lot, an awful lot, for him or her to get angry with other people. That's what love is. That's how it looks in practical, everyday life. The same thing could be said for the next descriptive word in verse 4. Love is kind. Love is kind. Those of us who are committed to standing for the truth, those of us who are committed to not compromising the truth need to hear this. For some reason, we tend to think that the only way you can stand for the truth is by being abrasive and harsh and obnoxious. Where is that in the Bible? Tragically, some of the most unkind Christians you will ever meet are those who are committed to an uncompromising stand for the truth. Beloved, it doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. Don't deceive yourself and think you are a strong Christian because you stand for the truth if you are an unkind person. The next phrase in verse 4 says, Love does not envy, or, depending on your translation, is not jealous. Love doesn't desire what someone else has. Love is not jealous of what someone else has. Love doesn't begrudge someone for what he or she has. Love doesn't do that. Love is not focused on self, but on others. Since that is the case, love is not going to begrudge someone for what he or she has, and love is not going to be jealous of someone for what he or she has. If we truly love, then we're going to be glad for the other person and rejoice with that other person. The next phrase in verse 4 says, Love does not parade itself. The New American Standard Bible says, Love does not brag. And the NIV says, It does not boast. All three of those descriptive phrases are saying that love is not focused on self and does not concentrate on self and therefore would not go around promoting self. You see, bragging and boasting are the external manifestations of the, of the next attribute that love is not. The end of verse 4 says love is not puffed up. The New American Standard Bible uses the word arrogant. Love is not arrogant. And the NIV uses the word proud. Love is not proud. If someone were to ask us to name the trait that is the opposite of love, my guess is that most of us would say the word 
hate. That's not wrong because hate is the opposite of love. But another correct answer would be, what is the opposite of love? The opposite of love is arrogance. We maybe don't immediately think of that. Love is not arrogant. Love is not proud. It is not puffed up. Let me, let me explain the relationship here, in case you're saying that. That doesn't seem to fit. In our culture, we have a phrase that describes someone who is proud or arrogant. We say the person is stuck on himself. You've surely heard that. So-and-so is stuck on himself. She's stuck on herself. That's an accurate description because someone in, when someone is proud or arrogant, then he or she is focused on self, stuck on himself. Love, however, is not focused on self. Love is focused on others. If you want to know one of the reasons why so many marriages fail in our society, it is because there are very few people who really love their spouses. Marriages fail because of of a lack of love. It sounds simplistic to say that, and it actually sounds like a cliché, but beloved, it's the truth. It is the truth. So many people go into marriage for what they can get out of it. They want to have their needs met, their wants met, their desires met, their fantasies met, their expectations met, their assumptions met. Even when they stand at the altar and commit themselves to love this other person, they often don't grasp what they really are saying. They don't have a clue. When they say, I love you, what they are really saying is, I love me. And I want you because I think you can meet all my expectations and make me happy. Beloved, hear what the Word of God says to us. Love is not arrogant or proud because love is not focused on self. That leads to the next phrase, which is the first phrase in verse 5. Verse 5 says, It does not behave rudely. What is rudeness? Rudeness is a lack of consideration of another person with the result that you are discourteous. Love is not rude because it does not fail to consider the other person. It does not fail to think about the other person. Now understand that this is talking about a complete disregard for other people, a complete disregard for another person and his or her feelings. This is not talking about something accidental. We've all accidentally been rude where we were just unaware. This is talking about a complete disregard. What would cause us to have a complete disregard for someone else and his or her feelings? To ask it another way, what would be behind us being rude? The answer is this. It would be a focus on ourselves instead of on others. That's the opposite of love, says the Holy Spirit here in verse 5. As the next phrase says, love does not seek its own. What that means is love never wants its own way. Boy, does that hit us right between the eyes. How often in your life do you want your own way? For me, this happens about several times a day. You know what that tells me? It tells me I need to keep growing in love. Now, it's not wrong to have desires, to have preferences. 
But when you demand your own way, or when you manipulate circumstances to get your way, or when you're upset when you don't get your own way, you are not acting in love. The next phrase in verse 5 says, love is not provoked. The New American Standard Bible words it the same, and the NIV says, love is not easily angered. Maybe the best way to render this Greek verb would be the ESV translation where it says, love is not irritable. Ouch. That hurts, doesn't it? Are you ever irritable around your family, your friends, your fellow employees, your teammates? Are you ever cranky, contentious, touchy, argumentative? Don't worry, I won't ask for a show of hands. If you came here this morning assuming you are a spiritual giant, then you have been cut down by this passage along with all of us. But you see, beloved, this this is really where the rubber meets the road. This This is where we find out where our hearts are really at. This is where we find out just how genuine our spirituality really is. Love is not irritable. And then the last phrase in verse 5 says, Love thinks no evil. The NIV probably says it best when it says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. If you really love someone as you're supposed to love that person, you, you don't keep a record. You don't throw up the past. Boy, it's amazing how many people violate this in their relationships. When some people get in a disagreement, conflict, they quickly allow it to escalate and they they get hysterical, almost out of control. They get hysterical, which is obviously not a good way to be. However, some get hysterical and others get historical because they throw up the past immediately. That's just as wrong, just as unhealthy. Husbands, wives, Do you remember the times your spouse has hurt you, disappointed you, upset you, offended you, let you down? Do you have a a mental catalog? Do you have the list? That's not love. Love does not keep a record. But there's more. Verse 6 says, Does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth. What does Paul mean by this phrase, love does not rejoice in iniquity? Some of these earlier ones that we've looked at are fairly easy to understand. Not necessarily easy to apply, but easy to understand. This one takes a little more thinking. What, What is meant by this phrase? Love does not rejoice in iniquity. An aspect of rejoicing in iniquity is when we are glad to hear about the sins of people we don't like or people against whom we are holding a grudge. You see, if someone has done you wrong or if you think they've done you wrong, it's very easy to let your heart get to the point where you are glad to hear about their sins because it makes them look bad. And it's very easy to let your heart get to the point where you're glad to hear about their sins and the consequences they are experiencing 
because, frankly, you want them to experience pain on account of what they have done to you. That's the wrong heart attitude. That's rejoicing in iniquity. Another way to rejoice in iniquity is to be glad about other people's sins because it makes you look better than them. We all want to look good in the eyes of others. That's a natural tendency we have to fight. Scripture refers to it as fear of man. We maybe don't associate it as something fear, but it's fear of man. It's, it's this inordinate awe of man in their opinion. So we, we all have this tendency to want to look good in the eyes of others. And that's why we have such a tendency to compare ourselves with others. And if we are allowing our hearts to be that way, then we will rejoice when others sin because in a strange way, a twisted way, a warped way, it makes us feel better about ourselves. Of course, we would never rejoice externally. We would never say that. We, we wouldn't have the audacity to do that. We would only rejoice in the secretness of our own hearts. But that's not love. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Another way we are guilty of rejoicing in iniquity is by the sin of gossip. Some people love to talk about the faults and sins of others. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Therefore, love is not happy to hear about other people's faults or sins. And love isn't happy to pass along other people's faults and sins. I can't help but wonder how much conversation would take place if people didn't talk about the failures, faults, and sins of others. For some people, that's, that's the majority of their conversation, sadly. The flip side of the coin is the next phrase in verse 6. Verse 6 says, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. What is this saying? If we really love someone, instead of looking for and rejoicing in iniquity, we will look for the good things in that person's life that line up with the truth, and we will rejoice in that. It's very easy to be guilty of focusing on people's faults and then mentioning those faults to others with the result that it detracts from a person's reputation. Love doesn't do that. Love is careful not to be disparaging of someone else's reputation, even wants to protect someone else's reputation. Love does not put down, diminish, tarnish someone else's reputation. Instead, love notices the good things in people's lives that line up with the truth, and love talks about that. Love talks about those things. The opposite of that is being hypercritical of others so that we are always picking apart others, even our spouses. That's not love. Love doesn't pick, 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 look for every little flaw, every fault, every failure. Love doesn't do that. And that leads to verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. As you can see, this verse rattles off four powerful actions performed by love. Four things that love does. The first one here in verse 7, love bears all things. 
This is a very interesting Greek term. This word means to, to pass over in silence. And the idea is this. Genuine love doesn't make an issue out of every mistake, every misstep, every wrong, every failure. That's why Paul follows this one here in verse 7 with what he says about rejoicing in the truth. Instead of nitpicking, always picking, love doesn't make an issue out of every mistake, every wrong, every failure. Love doesn't point out all the wrong someone else has done to him or her. There are people who violate this in their marriage, and they wonder why they don't have a good marriage. Listen, beloved, God did not bring you into your marriage to point out every mistake, every misstep, every wrong, every supposed failure in your spouse. That's not love. In fact, that's the opposite of love. If that's the way you function in relationships, then don't be surprised if you don't have good relationships. Love doesn't behave that way. This verse says love bears all things. The idea is this. Love is willing to go the extra mile to pass over in silence others' offenses, others' shortcomings. This is what 1 Peter 4.8 is referring to when it says love covers a multitude of sins. Love just throws a blanket over those things. It doesn't mean love doesn't see those sins. Sure, it sees the sins, but love is willing to throw a blanket over those. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all wrongs. Love is not looking for wrongs. Love is not quick to see wrongs. And whenever possible, will go the extra mile to pass over in silence the offenses of others. That's love. The next phrase follows this. This follows so naturally, follows right on the heels. The next phrase says, love believes all things. That simply means that love believes the best in others. Love is not suspicious, and it does not assume the worst. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. Now, let me offer a word of caution here, or correction. This does not mean that love is blind, as the saying goes. Loving others doesn't mean we don't see wrong. It doesn't mean we don't see weakness. It doesn't mean that we fail to see flaws, shortcomings. We do. We do. In fact, that's why we should have love, because we extend grace to people we love, believing that even when wrong and weakness are manifested, they will learn from it, turn from it, and grow through it. Love isn't blind to the truth. If, you're, if a person is blind to the truth, then you have to question whether it's really even love they have for the other person. Because it doesn't take, it doesn't take love, it doesn't take any effort if you don't see any shortcomings in other people. It doesn't take effort to have relationships if you're really that blind. Love is not blind to the truth about people's shortcomings, but love does give the benefit of the doubt And love believes the best when there is any opportunity to do so. The next phrase in verse 7 says, Love hopes all things. This builds on it another step. Love believes the best about the other person. But there are times when the facts are that the other person is not living in such a way to give us reason to believe a lot of good. What do we do then? We hold on to hope. 
When you really love someone, you don't give up on him. You don't give up on her. You continue to hold on to hope. If we really love someone, then we don't write him off as being unsalvageable. We continue to hold out hope. As someone has well said, love refuses to take failure as final. But I'll tell you, that can be an agonizing way to live at times. If you love someone who is not doing well, and you continue to hold on to hope, then that can be painful to endure. That's why the last phrase in verse 7 says, Love endures all things. Love endures the pain of disappointments, the pain of wounds, sins, hurts, and a host of other things. That's why the phrase says, love endures all things. It doesn't just endure little annoyances, minor annoyances. It endures mistreatment. It endures unfair treatment, brokenheartedness, and many other kinds of letdowns. That's what love does. Love stretches and endures as far as it can and should go. So this is what the Holy Spirit calls for through the pen of Peter in 1 Peter 1.22, when he says, love one another fervently. Love one another deeply. Now let's go back there to our text in 1 Peter chapter 1. After Peter's exhortation in verse 22, to love one another, he reminds us of why we should love this way. And why we can be expected to love this way. He says in verse 23, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed or perishable, but incorruptible, imperishable, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. We can love this way and we should love this way. Why? Because we have been born again. Those of us who have trusted Christ have been transformed, radically changed within. Therefore, we have the responsibility to love like this, and we have the power to love like this. That's the point. That's why Peter brings this up in the very next verse. He's basically saying this. God isn't asking us to do something we can't do. When you hear all of those descriptions of love from 1 Corinthians 13, maybe you feel like, Well, I I can't do that. I can't be that way. The bar is too high. The standard is, is too high. No, no. Peter says, God isn't asking us to do something we can't do. He has quickened us and he has given us new life in the new birth through the living and abiding word of God. He has used the power of his word to transform us. God's word isn't merely print on a page. It is living and it is powerful. That's why James 1.18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. God, the Holy Spirit, uses the power of his living word to open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts. And once we have been changed in that dramatic way, we are called to love others in the family of God with a fervent, stretching, deep, profound love. To reinforce his point about the power of the Word of God to transform us, 
Peter quotes from Hebrew scripture from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. Notice how he reinforces his point. Verse 24, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You will notice that these words here that I just read are italicized in your Bible, or maybe they're capitalized, or they're in quotation marks. There's something there to signify that this is a quote from Hebrew Scripture. As I mentioned, this is a quote from Isaiah 40, 6 through 8, a tremendously rich passage of Hebrew Scripture in which God exalts himself, gives these uh, elevated descriptions of himself and of his word, And Peter includes that quote to support what he has just stated about the power of God's word to change a person's life. He has just said in verse 23 that we have been born again through the word of God. And if someone says, now hold it, that's kind of stretching it, Peter. Does, does, Does print on the page really have that much power? Peter quotes from Isaiah 46 through 8 to reinforce his point. He is saying God's Word isn't merely a book. It's not merely a book, and it certainly isn't a dead book. Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's how powerful God's Word is. It can divide between the soul and the spirit. Is it possible for a surgeon to go in, open your body up, and go inside and figure out where your soul is, where your spirit is, and divide between those two? Absolutely not. But God's Word is powerful enough to do that. That's how potent it is. And that's why its life-changing truth is called the good news or the gospel. And Peter closes this chapter by saying, now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. The Greek word that Peter uses here for preaching does not merely mean to make a proclamation. There are Greek words that that occur in the New Testament that mean to proclaim something, to make a proclamation of some kind. But this word specifically means to preach the gospel. The word gospel is the Greek word euangelion, the verb form euangelizomai or euangelizo, which means to preach the gospel. The word euangelion means good news. The word of God gives us the good news. That's why it's so powerful. It tells us that it was God who loved the world. It was God who sent his son. It is God who forgives our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the good news. God loved, God sent, God forgives. This is the good news we are told about in the Word of God, and this is the good news that transforms a person's life when he or she embraces it wholeheartedly by faith. So I ask you this morning, have you done that? Have you been born again through the living and enduring Word of God? Now, I know in our culture the phrase born again has been abused, misused, and applied to all sorts of things in the wrong way. And therefore, there are a lot of Christians, understandably, who don't like to use the phrase. But it's a biblical phrase. 
Jesus was the first to use it in John chapter 3 when he told Nicodemus, unless a person is born again, he'll never see the kingdom of heaven. So even though the, the phrase has been cluttered in our culture, I ask you again, have you been born again through the living and enduring word of God? Has your life been changed? Your heart, your soul been transformed by the power of God's word? If not, Jesus said, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. If you've not been born again, if you've not been born, again, born from above, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. If you have, if you have been born again, then you see the exhortation that is given to all of us who know Christ. It is right there at the beginning of our text in verse 22. We are exhorted to love one another fervently. We are exhorted by this phrase, stretch your love to the limit. Stretch it like a muscle that you're using and you feel like you can't push anymore, but you do push more, you do give more, Push your love to that extent. Because if we claim we've been born again and we claim we love God, then wouldn't we want to do what God wants us to do? That just makes sense. And what does God want us to do? One of the main things God wants us to do is to love each other. Because Jesus said this in his high priestly prayer, Father, by this the world will know that they are my disciples if they love. In John's upper room discourse, Jesus said that in it, and he repeated it in his prayer. That's how important it is to our Lord. Love one another. Let's bow as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes, I want you to ask yourself that question once again. The question, have you really been born again? Have you been born again through the living and enduring Word of God? Has the Word of God transformed your life, changed your life, transformed your soul? If not, humble yourself before God this morning. Admit your condition. The worst thing you can do is is to deny your true condition, to pretend, or even try to convince yourself. That's the absolute worst thing you can do. Admit your true condition. If you're not born again, you're not. And acknowledge that. God knows it already. Acknowledge it to God. And say, God, I'm not. I've not been changed. I'm the same person I've always been. Change me. Take me. Forgive me. Transform me. Make me new in Christ. I want to belong to Him. I want to belong to You. Change my life. And if you have been born again and you claim that you're a new creation in Christ and you claim that you belong to God the Father, then you ought to want to do what he wants us to do. And he's told us very clearly in his word in many places what he wants us to do. And one of the most important things that he wants us to do is to love each other. So examine your love life. Do you really love the people of God? Do you love when it's hard to love? When it's a stretch to love? When you feel like you can't love anymore? Do you keep on loving? Stretching that muscle to the limit? That's the way God calls us to love.
Father, your word is so clear. It's, it's so clear on these matters. It is clear that, as Jesus said, unless we're born again, we will not see the kingdom of heaven. And so I pray for anyone here in our midst who is not a new creation in Christ, who needs to be born from above, born again through the living and enduring word of God. May you use the truth, the powerful truth of your word this morning to change people's lives, those who are in the kingdom of darkness, that they would be brought into the kingdom of your dear Son. And Father, for those of us who have experienced the new birth and have been changed from the inside out, for those of us who belong to you through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, may we hear your word and what it calls us to do in every respect of life, but especially in this area that you, you, you repeat so often. It comes up so often. It's in, in John's Gospel, the Upper Room Discourse. It's in the High Priestly Prayer in John 17. It's in Paul's letters. It's in John's letters. It's in Peter's letters. All throughout your word, you tell us how important this is to you. And if it's important to you, it should be important to us. May it always be important to us. So important that we obey it, we follow it, and we live it. We pray these things, not merely for our sake, but for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.